You're listening to the McKinsey on Consumer and Retail podcast, featuring wide-ranging conversations on the topics that matter most in the consumer and retail industries. I'm your host, Monica Toriello. It now sounds like a cliche, but that doesn't make it any less true. The retail sector has experienced as much disruption in the past five years as it has in the previous 25 That's the opening sentence of an article that was recently published on McKinsey.com titled Retail Reset, a new playbook for retail leaders. And it talks about the dramatic changes in the retail landscape among not just consumers, but also suppliers, employees, and investors, and how these changes are challenging the historical definition of what a retailer is and what it takes to be a successful retailer. And that's what we'll be talking about today with our guests, who are two of the authors of that article. Both of them advise and work closely with some of the world's leading retailers. So they've seen a lot of experimentation and innovation in the industry. And I will introduce them alphabetically by last name, as we do here at McKinsey. First up is Stephen Begley, a partner in McKinsey's New York office. Steve has worked with apparel retailers, convenience stores, department stores, grocery retailers, and he knows a lot about pricing, private label e-commerce and automation, and in fact, has written articles about each of these topics, and you can check them out on McKinsey.com. Welcome, Steve. Thanks, Monica. It's great to be here. Also here with us is Becca Coggins, who leads McKinsey's global retail practice. Becca is a senior partner based in the Chicago office, and she's worked with a vast array of retailers, hospitality companies, media companies, advising them on strategy, assortment, customer experience, and large-scale performance transformation. Thanks for spending time with us today, Becca. Thanks, Monica. Great to be with you all. So I know that in addition to working alongside retail CEOs and industry leaders on a day-to-day basis, you've also been to several industry events and conferences recently. So I just want to start with a broad question. What's the biggest or most interesting thing happening in retail right now? For me, I think what's most surprising is this divergence between how consumers say they feel versus what they're actually doing. So for instance, consumer sentiment is still around 2008, 2009 levels, according to the latest work we've seen, yet consumer spending is still relatively strong in the grand scheme of things. So we think the uptick is coming from, from lots of places, uh, in particular consumers who are, who are uh, splurging more. I'm sure we'll talk more about that later. But I think it's going to be really interesting to see how this trend plays out, particularly as we get into Q4 of 2023. Yeah, I think it's a great point, Steve. I think the other thing that we're hearing a lot about is from an industry structure perspective, it's been a few years, as your opening alluded to, Monica, of quite high highs and quite low lows. And so we see a lot of executives trying to find their footing in terms of what comes next. It went from you know hundreds of thousands of store closures to you know consumer spending actually through the pandemic being quite robust. Uh, if anything, we were supply constrained. Uh, to now, you see you know <laughs> a bit of a mix in how consumers are spending. So we see retail executives trying to sort of find their footing, while over time the long arc of the industry continues to be towards more and more consolidation of economic profit, really coming from the small a small group of uh, larger retailers. Some of what you're referring to, you know, I think a couple of McKinsey articles has called it the world of ands, right? Consumers want to do this and that. They want to save and they want to splurge. They're concerned about inflation and they are spending money on restaurants or whatever it is, right? Um, And, you know, both of you have actually been on this podcast before and it was three years ago, sort of at the peak of the COVID-19 pandemic. And at the time, people had just started doing 
curbside pickup or, you know, buy online pickup in store. And, and retailers stood up these offerings very quickly, right? They found solutions. They innovated fast because, because they had to. And uh, for the best retailers, it's a muscle that they've continued to exercise since then. So I'm curious, what are your favorite examples of post-pandemic retailer innovation or agility? So first of all, to your, to your point, people people really got religion during the pandemic or around agility. And, and as you mentioned, we saw things like Bopus and curbside not just get stood up quickly, uh, but I think retailers have really leaned in and, and built that muscle. And now these propositions have actually become quite core uh, to, to the overall retailer's value proposition. That said, I think these days, uh, what, what I personally find uh, most impressive is how quickly some retailers are embracing Gen AI. And that's not just as a way to drive efficiencies in their businesses, but it really is a way to elevate and enhance uh, customer and, and even associate experience. So if you think back to a year ago, Gen AI wasn't really on the radar for most of society and especially for most retailers. And now we've got clients who are on journeys where they're using Gen AI to create personalized creative content, uh, where they're standing up omni-channel 24-7 uh, selling assistance. Uh, we have one retailer who's starting a journey where they're actually going to be using input from store associates and their headsets of what they're using in store to not just uh, make for better answers, but to also communicate those answers more clearly down to the staff. And those staff are pretty often coming to their managers or to people in the store support center with questions of how do I address this particular customer need or how do I work with this particular system in the store? And so what they're looking to do with, with, with those employees is to actually say, we can communicate down uh, sort of the standard protocol for all of these things, but we actually want to learn from the employees through what they're telling us and communicating back through their headsets, what's actually working versus what, what, what might not be working that might be our standard operating procedure today. And so they're planning to use Gen AI to actually learn what's happening in stores at a more rapid pace and then to have a more consistent message coming back down across their network of stores to ensure a cleaner, more consistent customer experience. And, and in fact, we think there's even opportunity to help improve inventory availability uh, with that particular use case. So I think it's a really interesting uh, period for the retail sector. They've learned a lot about how to be agile during the pandemic. And now we're starting to see them really embrace that as, as Gen AI comes into the scene. I think it's fascinating to see how Gen AI has really captured the imagination of retailers. Well, and frankly, the economy at large. Um, and, and where we see this deployed most effectively, Monica, I think is seeing Gen AI as really part of an overall strategy around artificial intelligence, advanced analytics, you know, overall, not just, you know, Gen AI in a vacuum. That said, there are a few places uh, I think that we see the most common traction. Um, the first of those, I think, like many other industries, is in customer care. Um, you know, I heard an MIT uh, professor say that, you know, it won't be when Gen AI can actually give a better customer care experience. It will be, will it be before, you know, the end of the year or will it not, right? So that's how quickly uh, that innovation is taking off. Um, the second area is really in personalized content. So as we think about, you know, the personalization journey, many um, of our clients have been on. One of the bottlenecks has been generating segmented or personalized creative, right? It's actually quite hard. It's, you know, it's, it could be, you know, thousands or millions even of uh, iterations. 
And so leveraging Gen AI into thinking about what's the appropriate content for a given segment or a given micro segment or even individual, uh, we think is a very high, um, high impact use case and starting to get a bit more traction. And then the third, I think, is maybe less common in core retail, but we certainly see it in the service networks of retailers. Uh, and we see it in some of the adjacent industries is really thinking about how can I have a better outcome from a service call? How can I have a better diagnosis? How can I help a given service agent to um, get to a better solution first time, et cetera? So sort of a service angle uh, similar to customer care. I think those all have a lot of legs. I think, you know, and then some of the, the folks who are really sort of bleeding edge doing some of the things like Steve is describing uh, and how do we think about sort of in-person service even? I also think Gen AI is one of those topics where your employees and your customers are going to be embracing it in their personal lives. So if you don't start experimenting with it in your business model, they're going to bring it there anyway, right? It's almost like uh, SMS texting or or WhatsApp and how that's come into the professional context. So I think as a, as a retailer, uh, th there's actually not much of a choice but to, but to lean into this one um, and start to use it in your business. And if anything, I think in some cases, consumers are saying, okay, what's next retailers? You know, how can you continue to, you know, push the bar on convenience and push the bar on value uh, and get back to this sort of, you know, fail fast, or at least, you know, new innovation release uh, mentality. Uh, I think consumers have shown they're, they're willing to embrace it. About the consumers, you know, one of the things that we, that you have pointed out is that they're sort of um, some of their behaviors are contradictory, right? And one of, the, one of the things your article talks about is this rise of the zero consumer. And I'll just summarize it for our audience. Um, you know, zero boundaries. They're basically shopping across channels, right? Both online and in store. They have zero loyalty. They're trying different brands and products and retailers. They have zero patience, as in they won't wait more than like two days for shipping. And then zero mid-tier. They're either looking at the low-priced options like value or they're going premium. And then net zero, right? They care about sustainability. And so there's a lot to unpack there. But one of the things that you recommend is for retailers to pursue greater share of life as opposed to just share of wallet. So in other words, if you're a retailer, you need to give consumers more reasons to come to you, right? Offer them new ways to incorporate you into their life. What are some unique or unexpected ways in which retailers are successfully doing this? They're successfully capturing greater share of life. What are you seeing out there? Successful strategies are founded in this notion of really consumers are in charge. And this is, you know, the zero consumer is really just, you know, a different way of saying this is consumer driven commerce. The folks who embrace consumer driven commerce are the winners. What we see those companies doing is actually saying that's not about a category. That's about a relationship that we have with a consumer. And so we should extend that into auto. We should extend that into travel. We should extend it into categories that, that sort of, you know, belie the four walls of our store. And I think you're starting to see that in more and more creative ways as you think about, you know, what is the retailer's role in providing healthcare? What's a retailer's role in providing telephony and connectivity? Uh, and so I think you're going to see more new and fresh versions of how that ecosystem dynamic or share of life dynamic actually manifests as, as retailers embrace this consumer-driven commerce. And I would say, I think retailers, they they understand the need to go after greater share of life. And I think that's part of why we've seen such an, an expansion of subscriptions and membership models in particular over the last couple of years. But, but I think it's also important for retailers to kind of go beyond the core of uh, what we would call omni-channel retail today or, or even services today. 
And it's about fundamentally entering new businesses that complement or, or derive synergies from other parts of, of the retailer's footprint. So we, we've seen examples of, you know, QSRs moving into the banking world, uh, for example, or we've seen retailers, actually many retailers talking about how can we do a better job of partnering with airlines? I think we're actually still in, in really the early innings of, of this whole increased share of life concept. In this market, I think we see maybe even more advanced versions of it in Asia, uh, parts of LATAM, et cetera. That's right. I'm sure there have been sort of failed experiments in this, though, right? Retailers that tried and failed to either build an ecosystem or participate in one. Can you point to some lessons learned from those not quite successful experiments? Like, you know, what pitfalls should they watch out for? Because it could seem like the opportunities are endless. If a QSR can be a bank, what can't they be? I think the biggest risk here is not being choiceful in, in what you won't do as much as what you will do. Uh, we've seen retailers trying to do a little of everything while not necessarily doubling down on, on a handful of things. Uh, and that leads to fragmentation, not just of management focus, but also of capital, right? Uh, and when that happens, I think the root cause is often too much of a rule by consensus culture. And I would argue that maybe short of the initial days of, of the pandemic in 2020, the bar for decisive, but also inspiring leadership in retail probably hasn't been as high as it is right now. I think the other failure mode is to saying, it would be great if we could get our consumers to buy X, because that would be a great you know, margin enhancing category. Oh, wouldn't it would be fabulous to be in that market versus saying, actually, what capabilities do we have and what are our consumers actually looking for uh, where there might be a gap in what they're being what they're being offered today. And so I think you see a real difference when somebody just says, hey, let's add these categories because they could be really attractive from a PL perspective versus, hey, we have a distinctive you know, capability in call it services. How do we think about extending that service capability into more areas that help our consumers? And then find a way to actually do that in a way that's accretive to our economics. I think that's a, a common one. And that might mean, by the way, the model by which you actually do it is different. It might be a partnership versus you know, uh, an owned capability, et cetera. We refer to a lot of those, those businesses as, as what we call beyond retail, meaning these are business lines that extend beyond the core omni-channel retail offering. And our, our work suggests that about 10% or even less than 10% of revenue for most retailers uh, sits in those businesses today. But within five years, it could be as much as 40% of, of the profits. And I think the investor community will continue to push the sector to invest here. So if you're a retailer right now, I, I do think you need to move into this beyond retail space, but being choiceful on where you will and won't play um, is incredibly important. Let's shift gears a little bit and talk about talent, which you know is one of the big challenges in retail. I mean, we've long known that frontline attrition and retention is an issue and continues to be, but also attracting new kinds of talent, right? Outside the traditional retail talent pool to do some of these things that you've been talking about, right? Whether it's tech talent or data science or people who can run a media network or people to run these new services that retailers are now offering. What are some creative and effective ways that you've seen retailers win and keep the talent that they need? It's important, as Becca has kind of alluded to here, it's important to look at both the frontline and headquarters. And I think for the last few years, most folks have been fo focused on the frontline for obvious reasons. 
Uh, within headquarters, we're seeing a lot of increased demand for data science, for uh, deep critical thinking skills powered by AI, right? And I think as we all know, those capabilities haven't always existed in, in all corners of retail. I think some of the creative things we've seen there, other than sort of traditional recruiting, is establishing partnerships. How can retailers work with their suppliers to bring some of the talent over from suppliers into the retail environment for a while and send it back out? We're seeing a lot of retailers actually experiment with that right now. I think there's also a piece to um, creating career ladders that start in the stores and, and work all the way up into the corporate headquarters. If you look back, I, I can tell you a lot of the some of the most seasoned operators and executives I work with in retail started out in stores. And I think that is an important part of what makes the sector tick and something that shouldn't be lost. So I think starting to look down into the front lines to say, where is our highest potential talent and how do we create ladders for people to come up into the corporate environment and, and develop those skills over time will be something we see more of. From a frontline perspective, as we've surveyed retail frontline employees, we've actually found some pretty interesting patterns. The first we would say is the thing that they are seeking above any hard benefits is flexibility, right? The ability to influence their schedule, the ability to influence their location, thinking about different types of jobs that they might do that they could qualify for. And yet employees, or employers rather, are quite disconnected from that. And they think that what employees are seeking are mostly hard benefits. And so you see this continued disconnect. We think retailers that actually can reset that employee value proposition for the front lines including, as Steve mentioned, thinking about career ladders that actually start in the store, um, we think that they will increasingly be the winners and that those employee value propositions that embed flexibility, that really embed you know, advancement, um, we think that that will be a, a really key to winning this sort of next, uh, the next generation of retail. And flexibility is a tough one, right, for the front line. Um, what are some creative ways that, uh, that retailers are giving frontline employees flexibility? Some of the best examples we've seen, Monica, have been where uh, retailers have actually invested in scheduling flexibility. Uh, a lot of this can actually be managed through uh, systems, uh, but to be able to let uh, employees swap shifts with one another, right? So taking it out of the manager having to do things top down, but to, to swap shifts, to be able to um, take shifts in smaller increments, three hours instead of six hours, as an example. Um, some of the most forward thinking have actually created almost a mini gig workforce within their own workforce. Remember, retail you know, is the largest private sector employment employers in the country. Uh, and so some of these are quite large pools of people. So to say, hey, as long as you can certify, um, get certified to do a specific task, a specific job, you can actually seek a schedule that allows you to mix and match what those things are. So again, helping think about development, helping think about, you know, creating flexibility, both from a schedule perspective, but also an intellectual curiosity and personal development perspective. Another thing we see a lot of investment in is how to think about um, education uh, programs, whether that is skill-based, uh, whether that is more classic secondary education, certifications on technology, et cetera, to think about really reskilling as a very important dynamic uh, for retail front lines. As we think about the jobs to be done five years from now, are going to look a little bit different than the jobs to be done in retail right now. Let's talk about private labels. So, you know, given the sort of zero mid-tier and zero loyalty consumer, there's probably never been a better time for private labels, right? What are you seeing in the private label arena? And should retailers be thinking about private brands differently than they have in the past? 
we're seeing just that, Monica, which is there really hasn't been a better time for some time uh, for private labels. And, and maybe more specifically, we see, uh, first of all, consumers really seeking value and increasingly in the form of private label. But I think you can add on to that the idea that um, you can oftentimes find either better margin profile for a retailer and or more clear differentiation. And in some cases, actually both of those. So, you know, for us, it looks like a moment to really stack wins, you know, delivering better value to consumers, creating a signature product or product line uh, for that retailer, and oftentimes at a better margin profile than the national brand equivalent. I would lastly just say that penetration in private label tends to be sticky. So once we see actually some growth in private label, which has been growing at twice the rate of national brands over the last three years, we expect that is likely a pretty sticky movement. So we think now is the time to really think about your private brand offering, where and how it's distinctive from a, both a value and offer perspective and really you know, meeting customers where they are in this moment. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. I, I think we're having a real moment in private brands. And, and I would say we've turned a corner in private brands in American retail, right? Private brands, they have a seat at the table. They're an important part of the assortment architecture. Uh, to, to Becca's point right now, in particular, there's a, a real push towards value and private brands historically have played an, an important role there. But at the same time, I think in American retail, we've seen private brand finally has permission to extend uh, into the other tiers uh, as well, whether that's in grocery, home, apparel, you have moderate and even high price point uh, brands in the, in the portfolio. And historically, I think as many of us know, European markets, Canada, they've been very good at this. Uh, but what's interesting now is we're getting calls from, from retailers in Latin America and in Asia, and they want to talk about what's happening in United States private, uh, private brands, um, because they're looking at just the amount of innovation that seems to be happening in a very short period of time. And I think there's a lot that can be learned from that. You know, the retail reset basically involves every sort of primary stakeholder group of retail, right? And and it, it's a lot. It's a lot for CEOs to think about. What's the hardest part of this all? What is it that's keeping retail CEOs up at night? What's sort of their top of mind, highest priority, toughest to crack challenge? Not all executives will say it this way, but we, we talked a little bit about the zero consumer. And I, I think if you, if, I think a lot of retail executives are worried about the consumer. They've always had a high bar in terms of what they expect from retailers. Uh, but I think that bar is rising and they're becoming even more choosy with, with where they spend their, their money, right? They're shopping differently. They're switching brands and retailers more frequently. Uh, and they're a lot less patient than they used to be in terms of, you know, what they expect in terms of shipping standards and minimum order values, for example. Um, in some ways, I'd argue that's what makes the spot we're in so exciting, right? Because with all of this change and disruption uh, becomes innovation. Uh, and that's why in the article, we talk about how what you do in the next two to three years could actually have a pretty material impact on your performance in the next 5, 10, 15 years, years plus. Um, I personally spend quite a bit of time with CFOs. And I think for them, uh, many of whom have cleaned up their balance sheets in the last couple of years, uh, they're starting to think about a few years down the line and contemplating how are you going to handle uh, debt maturities or refinancings uh, that will need to happen and, and what will be, uh, it, it increasingly looks like a, a higher interest rate environment than than the last time they did this a couple of years ago. So I, I think in, in the CFO office in particular, folks are starting to really think ahead to say, what is the performance trajectory of, trajectory of the business over the next couple of years and how do I 
make decisions now that that put me in the best position possible to to manage those types of events um, as they come due. Yeah, at the risk of skirting the question, Monica, I I'm not sure it's one topic specifically, but rather the idea that we are operating at a speed unlike what has been the historic norm in a level of uncertainty that is far higher than the historic levels of uncertainty. And so as a you know retail executive thinking about making some pretty big calls, many of which might challenge convention. So for example, where am I putting my capital? Is it stores or is it technology? You know, how am I thinking about my employment models, my relationship to the workforce, et cetera? A lot of these things are changing in pretty fundamental ways in this backdrop of you know, hyperspeed, high uncertainty. And I think that that is just, it's a its a very difficult moment to make some of those uh, big calls. I think that's essentially what, that's what keeps me up at night at least. <laughs> well, let's talk about just sort of a sh short-term thing, which is we're coming up on the holiday season, right? Which for some retailers accounts for a significant percentage of their annual revenue. So parting thought, I guess, if you could offer one piece of advice for retail executives as they enter this all important season. What would it be? Right now, I, I think you're right, Monica, right? The most important uh, thing for most retailers should be focusing on executing holiday 2023 with excellence. Q4, as you mentioned, it's a make or break quarter for most of the industry. Uh, so keeping the eye on the ball there is 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 critical, um, especially as we look back at the last few years and recognize that that for most of the sector, we're trying to lap multiple banner years in a row. So I think executing holidays is, is number one priority. More broadly, I think now is a really important time for retail sector leaders to be thinking about the next five, 10 years down the line, right? We know the business model is being disrupted. Uh, we know that the concentration of economic profit for the sector is increasing, meaning over time, we're seeing fewer, bigger winners. Uh, and so now I think is the time to be creating a vision for what is your business actually going to look like a decade from now? Uh, what business lines will you be in? What will you not be in? What does that complexion of revenue and profit pools look like? Uh, and, and how are you going to get there? I fully agree. I think job one is, you know, deliver a delightful holiday to your consumers, particularly recognizing this you know, duality that consumers are feeling themselves, right? You know, they're seeking value, but they also want to splurge. We've seen through the last several years, you know, real willingness to think about protecting holiday traditions and spending during holiday. Um, so I think delivering this, this joyful holiday with their consumers is sort of job one. I think Steve hit the nail on the head though, that as we look back at sort of periods of disruption in the economy and how retail, how the retail industry responds. There's a very clear, very clear pattern where, where retailers who are both aggressive on growth, finding what those pockets are where they can be differentiated, where they can really lean into this sort of idea of consumer-driven commerce, while also being very mindful of resetting the cost base for what their business needs to be. We've seen those companies not only come out of a period of uncertainty or turbulence faster, but we've actually seen that advantage that they create stick for about the better part of a decade. So these are these pivotal moments where we see the, the industry reshape. We think we're in one right now, hence the name of the article. Uh, and so we think this is, you know, deliver holiday, get some wind in your sails, and then think about that journey uh, over the next decade. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the McKinsey on Consumer and Retail podcast. A transcript of this conversation will be posted on McKinsey.com very soon. 
To suggest topics for future episodes, email us at consumer underscore podcast at mckinsey.com. To stay connected with us, subscribe to our email alerts on mckinsey.com. Thanks again for listening.